Folks, if you turn uh, with me, we've reached Isaiah chapter 60. Um, We're going to read not the whole chapter, but the first 14 verses. Sorry, page uh, 746, if you uh, are planning to, to use that Bible in the pew there. Isaiah 60, and we'll read the first 14 verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carrying on on their arm. Then you'll look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Cater's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple." Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nest? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, In favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They'll never be shut, day or night. So that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary and I'll glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressor will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We're going to look at uh, some stuff in Isaiah, and then we're going to have our communion together. So I'm going to go straight in to the the passage. Um, we'll break halfway through uh, and sing a song. But we're we're actually going to look at a couple of chapters this evening. We've read from chapter 60, but we're going to have a quick look at 59 uh, as well. The emphasis will be very much on chapter 60. But uh, a few comments on chapter 59 will help bridge from uh, 58, where we were a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Those of you who were here with us a a couple of weeks ago uh, 
will remember that chapter 58 of Isaiah is a very, uh, very powerful and challenging kind of a passage. Uh, with the help of Tim Keller, Bruce Walkey, and a few others, this ended up for me being a, I, I don't know, it feels like the clearest articulation of the biblical call to social action that I've uh, ever found myself able to give. Uh, I've had a sense of God speaking to me about this stuff and uh, speaking maybe to our church. So I hope we're listening. Chapter 58, uh, don't, don't move on too quickly from what we read and thought about there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I mentioned this this morning, but uh, just for continuity's sake, want to come back to it this evening. Um, the when I was preaching a couple of weeks ago, uh, I mentioned the event beyond the food bank and invited you, if anybody wanted to, to come down to that. Uh, six of us from Kirkpatrick made our way down there, which was brilliant. Um, I said, uh, I told the story this morning uh, about uh, the, the learning we did there about fuel poverty, uh, about this heat or eat uh, phenomenon where people are choosing in Belfast whether to heat their home or feed their family. Um, As we sat there on that particular evening, um, I had a chat with the guys who who were there from Kirkpatrick, and I asked if anybody uh, would be interested in being part of a group, maybe helping our church to to think again uh, about how we uh, ensure that our congregation is is alert and engaging with questions such as this. So there were a group of people there in the moment who who said that they would be interested in helping with that. If you're somebody who's interested in that, uh, come and have a word with me over coffee later, and I'll be sure to include you in any conversation that we have about that. So that's chapter 58, uh, the call to, to social action. Chapter 59 felt a bit transitional to me, and that's why uh, I'm focusing more on chapter 60. But let's let's just keep the thread and have a quick look at it. So verse 1, chapter 59, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear. So there's something here about God being able to do the thing that we're we're learning about or thinking about. Uh, Whatever... Isaiah has been talking about the Lord. The Lord is is able for it. Well, but what was he talking about? At the end of chapter fifty-eight, after God calling his people to social action, calling them away from their religiosity back to a real, incisive care for the poor, at the end of the chapter, he paints a picture of a beautiful people. Look at verse 10. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. And the rest of chapter 58 talks about God's people in these glowing terms. They're a well-watered garden. They're like a spring whose waters will never fade. So whenever we come into chapter 59, the Lord's saying, I can do that. 
I can make you into the the well-watered garden, the spring that'll never fade, into the light that shines in the dark. Surely the arm of the Lord isn't too short to do this. So that's, that's brilliant. God can do this. He can make us into this kind of a community. That's verse 1 of chapter 59. Verse 2 slams the brakes right on. Just as you're starting to get encouraged and excited, everyone shudders to a halt. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Let's read on and see what's going on here. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. And so it goes on. So what we have here in the opening verse of the chapter is the prophet telling people, yes, God can make you into that beautiful light that's described in chapter 58. God's well able to do that. But then he says in chapter 59, he's not gone to. Not while you live the lives described in these opening verses. The godly we see in the middle of the chapter, they're looking for light in dark times. Picking up in verse 9, we look for light, but all is darkness for brightness. But we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we're like the dead. Isaiah does something interesting and poetic there in verse 14. He personifies justice and truth. Justice, he says, is driven back. Picture justice like a a battalion going into battle but they've been defeated. There's an overwhelming power of injustice at work among God's people, a callous disregard for the poor. Justice isn't getting anywhere. And truth, he says, has stumbled in the streets. It feels to me like he's describing truth as as limping or, or being disabled. I thought that was a very telling way to talk about truth. Have you ever noticed that when a culture becomes so, so entirely dishonest and disingenuous, there comes a point where truth doesn't really work anymore. It, it's disabled. A true thing, it's hard to tell now what, what's true and what isn't. It can no longer function. Towards the end of the chapter, things get so bad that the Lord himself steps in. Verse 16, read with me. The Lord saw that there was no one. He was so appalled that there was no one to intervene. So on his own arm, sorry, his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He'll repay the islands their Jews. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they'll revere his glory. For he'll come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. The Lord's patience is at an end. He's waited long enough for righteousness among his people, so he comes himself to judge the wicked, verse 18, and to redeem those who repent, verse 20. Folks, we said when we started Isaiah that it would be a message of judgment and hope. And we have noticed that even in this tail end of the book where the emphasis is very much on hope with some beautiful imagery, there's a, there's a realism needed. God will judge the earth. He'll judge the wicked and will redeem those who repent. We come now to chapter 60. I think um, by the time you get to chapter 60, you reach the high point of the whole book of Isaiah. After that downer in chapter 59, it just doesn't get any better than this. In fact, the whole of human history is never going to transcend the vision that Isaiah gives here in chapter 60, in these few short verses. For that reason, I've decided to call this uh, this evening goal there's something about this chapter that speaks to me of the goal of history, the goal of God's dealings with his people. We're going to notice three things. When's the goal going to be reached? How the goal will be reached? And what's the goal of the goal, if that's not too confusing? So the when, the how, and the what of the goal of human history. Let's think about the when. We read chapter 60, some beautiful imagery there. What? When's it talking about? Look again. Verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 3. Nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your dawn. When you read this, you think, finally, after the judgment, the exile, this is it. This is the moment God has this beautiful future in mind for Jerusalem and for Judah. A time of political power, of economic prosperity. It's all there. Talks about the wealth of the nations coming to Jerusalem. Talks about the kings who used to oppress them, now bowing before them. When's it going to happen? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. Who are those that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests, Surely the islands look to me, to the lead are the ships of Tarshish. Hmm. It's getting a bit harder to see that as a, an immediate, you know, a prophecy of the immediate future of historical Jerusalem, that place the exiles have just come along to. Ships coming along in the clouds. You sort of wonder what Isaiah's... Um, been ingesting 
whenever he writes this kind of stuff. Isaiah, I think, is describing something here that never actually happened in human history and that actually couldn't happen in human history. So for this part of the prophecy, let's, let's try to work out what's going on here. Isaiah's standing on the shore, and he's looking out across the ocean. And across the horizon, where the ocean meets the sky, he, he can see something. Keep your eye on verse 8 and see if this makes any sense to you. At first, it looks like clouds. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're looking, you're at the seashore, you're looking out, and you don't know what it is you're looking at. That's what Isaiah is dealing with here. So is, is it clouds or, or no? Maybe not, because it, it seems to be getting bigger. Maybe it's a flock of birds. Uh, and then he looks and, and he keeps looking and he thinks, no, no, it's the islands. It's the islands of the Mediterranean. And then when he looks again, it, it's ships. So what he, what he sees in, in this vision that he's having is a, a huge fleet of ships, the biggest fleet you, you could ever imagine. It has to be massive, and here's why. Look, look who's there. Midian and Sheba. That won't mean a lot to us, but those, by the way, if you look them up, they're countries to the south of the land of Judah. Ephah is coming. Ephah's to the east. Kedar and Nebaioth are to the north and to the west. Tarshish was Spain. Um, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but in the times the biblical writers are writing, Tarshish is the end of the known world. There's nowhere after Spain that people know about. So Tarshish stands as a symbol for the end of the earth. So do you see what Isaiah is saying in his prophecy? He says, all the wealth of all the nations is streaming into Jerusalem. Now, we live two and a half millennia or so after the time of Isaiah's prophecy. That's never happened. And actually, I don't think it's going to happen. Not in the normal course of human history. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because of what Isaiah does in this chapter. He doesn't finish there. If, if what he says in the early part of the chapter seems uh, very grandiose, he, he just goes bigger in the second half. He raises it to another level. Look at verse 18. He's talking now about a society where there's no violence, no more war, crime, disorder of any kind. Verse 20, there's no sorrow, no more sadness. Verse 19, it's a place that doesn't seem to need the sun or the moon anymore. Things are so good, it's so beautiful, it's so bright that... And now we realize that he's not writing about the immediate future of the city of Jerusalem. He's looking far into the future and he's looking for the goal of God's dealings with human beings. He's looking at the new heavens and the new earth. Just to confirm that for a second, keep your finger in Isaiah 60 and flick with me to the place in the Bible where we're told most about the new heavens and the new earth. Turn with me to Revelation 21, right near the end of your Bible. What you'll notice when you look at Revelation 21, if you have it open and Isaiah 60 open at the same time, you'll see how similar John's vision in Revelation is to the vision of Isaiah 
here in chapter 60. Look at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he'll dwell with them. But look at how John describes the holy city. Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 21. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Verse 23. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Doesn't need the sun or the moon. Didn't Isaiah say something about that? Verse 25, On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Isn't that what Isaiah has been talking about? Chapter 22, verse 1, The river of the water of life flows down the middle of the great street of the city, and the leaves of the tree are there for the healing of the nations. There's going to be peace. Isaiah's been talking about peace. Folks, this is the future. This is the destiny of the human race. This is the goal to which Isaiah first pointed and to which John pointed centuries later and towards which God is bringing his people right now. So we've thought about the when of this goal of God's dealings with humanity. It'll be reached when God finally recreates a new heavens and a new earth. How? How's he going to do it? Well, we go back to the text. Did you notice the magnetic community at the heart of this chapter? The heart of God's purposes. Look for a second. I'm going to let you do a bit of Bible study here. See how many references you can find to people coming or being gathered to Jerusalem. I'll give you a moment to scan, and I only need you to scan the first 14 verses. How many times can you see something about coming or being gathered? Okay. I found 11. Any advance on 11? Round about that? 11 times in 14 verses we're told of people coming to Jerusalem or being gathered to Jerusalem. And those are only the explicit mentions. I think there are more that are implied. Look who's coming. Nations, verse 3, and kings, all come in verse 4. Isaiah makes mentions of sons and daughters. By the way, it's a painful thing for any parent when they have a when they follow Jesus and they have a child who doesn't. As I read that verse, I just wondered if it could serve as an encouragement to keep prayerful and expectant. See what the Lord's going to do. Asking God to bring them home. Who else is coming? 
There's wealth being brought, verse 4. Riches, verse 5. They're going to come from Sheba, verse 6. Gathered from Cater, verse 7. The ships of Tarshish, verse 8. They're going to bring Jerusalem's children along with silver and gold. I could go on, but I'll leave it at that. It's an incredible image. The world bringing its wealth to Jerusalem, bringing its power and its prestige and laying them at the feet of God's people. Folks, I've said that this feels to me like the high point, a pinnacle in what we've been reading in Isaiah. I struggle with this chapter because it's almost impossibly beautiful. You see, I've grown up in a time where people aren't coming and gathering around communities of God's people. Church-going statistics, at least in, in our denomination, don't make for happy reading. In the 17 years I've been in East Belfast, the, the membership of the congregations that make up our presbytery has lost 40%. 17 years. That's heartbreaking. How, how do we reflect on that? I don't want to just say that and, and walk away from it. I, I want to think about that for a second. I, I accept that only God is sovereign over a culture, that you and I can't control the mood of a society and, and shouldn't take that burden on ourselves. Maybe it's always been the way that church attendance rises and falls. I, I'm not going to say that, that, as I say, that we're responsible for all of that. But surely there's more that we do need to say. Surely the church ought to be attractive in whatever culture it finds itself in. Look at Jesus' own ministry. Uh, his preaching was very demanding. The, but, but people couldn't, couldn't not come and, and experience it for themselves. They simply couldn't resist it. So much of what you read in the Gospels is about Jesus having to escape crowds of people because they, they wanted to get close to him. I can remember Dallas Willard he, talking about this one time. He talked about the unavoidable attraction of a community where people are really with Jesus, genuine Jesus followers. He said they should be queuing up outside, beating the door, begging you to let them in. Did that ever happen in a church that you were part of? Maybe it did. Um, I'm just listening. They're knocking quietly. That, that's all it is. You know what I mean. That's not been our experience in our generation. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, why the Presbyterian Church in East Belfast is so easy to leave? Or why, for those who are on the outside, it's so easy to ignore Maybe we've got to bear in mind some of the stuff we've learned in these last couple of Isaiah sermons. A couple ago, we were learning about a countercultural community. Last time we met, we were talking about a place of radical justice and love. If people saw more of that, us pouring our lives into our neighborhoods in this city, then maybe they'd be more inclined 
to come and to gather with us. So we've thought about the when. When's the goal going to be reached? It's whenever God recreates heaven and earth. How's he going about doing this work? By creating a a beautiful community that the nations will come and want to gather into it. Our last question for this evening, what's the goal of this magnetic community? What's, What's really behind all of this? We haven't even touched on this yet. Isaiah won't let us miss it. The goal of this beautiful community is to attract people to the beautiful God. Look, look with me. Last line of verse 6. People, yes, they're coming from Midian and from Ephah and Sheba. They're bearing gold and incense. But why? To proclaim the praise of God. The flocks of Kedar, the rams of Nebaioth, going to be gathered in verse 7. For what purpose? As offerings on my altar to adorn my glorious temple. The ships from Tarshish, bringing their gold and their silver. Why are they coming? Verse 9. To the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Folks, again, there are more references, but I, th- I think the, the point is clear. Isaiah shows us, keep your eye on verse 9. He shows us how the beauty of the community is related to the beauty of God. He says at the end of the verse, the nations will come flooding to the new Jerusalem. Why? For he has endowed you with splendor. Any beauty that's in the community is only there because it's been given by the beautiful God. And folks, this guards us against two mistakes we can make in the church. On the one hand, we might say she's not beautiful and she's not really meant to be. Sure, we're just a bunch of struggling sinners and it's okay that we look very like the people around us. In fact, that makes us more relevant to them and maybe more attractive. No. That's not what the scriptures teach. Isaiah says we've been endowed with splendor. On the other hand, we might say, what a beautiful bunch of people we are. It couldn't be any other way. Of course, people will be attracted to us. When people as attractive as me get together with people as attractive as you, it's going to be a very attractive place and lots of people are going to be attracted to it. No, says Isaiah. The only splendor that you have is the splendor that you've been given. Yours is a borrowed beauty. It's not one of your own. Folks, any time a person is attracted into our church family, we want to make sure that they're introduced to the beauty at the heart of it. Don't ever let them stay with us. They'll be gone in no time. Bring them to Jesus. The beauty at the heart. So what's the goal of any beautiful Christian community in the present or in the future? It's his glory. The goal is to give God the glory that he deserves. And actually, just as we close, this glory is something that God wants to give his son. 
We get a tent, there's no mention of Jesus really in this passage. But we get a very tantalizing glimpse of Jesus in a very surprising place. The birth narratives of Jesus, what we sometimes call the Christmas story. We said uh, at the outset that the glorious events that Isaiah talks about here in Isaiah 60, this honoring of the city of Jerusalem, that it never happened in history. But maybe it did. What if it wasn't the city that ended up being honored in the way described in this chapter? What if it was a newborn child? A child who had the light of the glory of God shining over him as at his birth. A child who had wise men coming from the east carrying gold and frankincense. Verse 7, keep your eye on verse 7. Shepherds coming with flocks, not to Jerusalem, but to a child, a baby born in Bethlehem. Do you see what's happening here? You can't talk about the glory of God and not talk about Jesus Christ. The hopes that the people had for the city of Jerusalem, they're being transferred unto this child. The Jerusalem that Isaiah is talking about is not, not a, a city in a country. It's the community that's going to gather around this child. That's where you're going to find the new Jerusalem. Folks, this chapter has been all about the glory of God. It's been about beauty, magnetic beauty. And we've finished by talking what's at the heart of it all. It's Jesus Christ. I think when we get this, then what Isaiah says in verse 5 may well one day be true of us. We'll be part of something that will leave us like this. You will look and be radiant your heart will throb and swell with joy. Of course it will. You'll be doing the thing you were made for, to draw people to Jesus Christ. We're going to sing, and then we're going to take some bread and wine together. We're going to sing a, another song that just draws us into the glory of of our God. Behold our God. We'll stand as we sing. We are here because Jesus has invited us. When Jesus was on earth, he often enjoyed meals with his friends. On the night before he died, when darkness was beginning to fall, he sat at a table with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. At this last supper, he took bread and he took wine and he told his disciples to remember him by doing the same thing, by following his example. This evening, we're his disciples and we will follow his example.